I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22. Hear now the word of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us this opportunity to hear your word, your precious word, once again. We desire to understand this word. We desire to see its fruit in our lives. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would not only give us the ability to spiritually understand these things, but also the ability to walk them out, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We ask for your blessings as we hear the word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we return to Galatians today. And we are returning to this book after we considered another list of things last time. Last time we were in Galatians, we looked at a very ugly list, the works of the flesh. It's an ugly list because it's what man brings forth apart from the grace of God, what naturally comes out of fallen mankind, anger and wrath and malice and contentions. and These are the kinds of things that are produced. These are the works that fallen man produces But in contrast with those works is the beautiful gardens that the Spirit of God produces. I think it's interesting to consider the word choice that Paul gave us here. He began the other list that we studied last time calling it the works of the flesh. But then he uses this word to describe the work of the Spirit. He doesn't say the works of the Spirit... He says, the fruit of the Spirit. And I think that this is very intentional because the works of the flesh can never produce anything fruitful, anything beautiful, anything positive. Fruit is a very good picture for us. It involves life and health and beauty. Works of the flesh, on the other hand, are ugly and barren, desolate, and unfruitful. That's why Paul elsewhere, he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The works of darkness, sin, does not produce fruit. It does not produce beauty. It does not produce life. And so when we get this list of the fruit of the Spirit, what Paul is setting forth for us is the characteristics of a man or a woman who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And we know that every Christian, we have learned from this book, has the Holy Spirit of God. There's no exceptions to that. 
And if one is united to Jesus Christ by faith, and one has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them, then that Holy Spirit will not fail to bring forth his perfect work in our lives. The Spirit will bring to completion what he has started in our lives. And that means that every Christian, no exceptions, every true Christian will manifest a life that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. And yes, it's going to be with varying degrees. It's going to be with varying speeds of growth. Some trees will be more fruitful, more abundantly fruitful than others, but every Christian will manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And of course, this is a well-known passage, this list of the fruit of the Spirit, something that amongst Sunday school lessons is probably in the top five things one might learn in terms of parts of Scripture, is these are the characteristics of a Christ-like person, is the fruit that the Spirit produces. I remember growing up in Sunday school, and we had those diagrams, maybe you've seen them before, and uh, they have the different fruits. They have, you'll have bananas and apples and oranges, and they'll align these different fruits with the characteristics of Galatians. In fact, my children inevitably went to that last night as we were reading the passage. They said, well, which, which fruit is gentleness? I said, well, there's actually no technical connection uh, between the actual fruits, uh, physically speaking. But of course, these illustrations are given to us for a reason. They help us understand what the Spirit does. We love fruit. I think everybody loves fruit, different kinds of fruit. You might have your favorite. But fruit is a good picture because fruit is healthy. Fruit is life-giving. Fruit is refreshing. It is beautiful. All of these things are why we love fruit. And so it's a good picture for us that when the Spirit of God does a work within our souls and brings forth this new life within us, that we bear forth things of beauty, things that are refreshing, things that are life-giving to those that are around us. And so let's take these illustrations that God gives us, these agricultural, these plant illustrations are so helpful for us. And so as we look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit, there's different ways we could do this. I debated whether to try to go hit every single one, uh, and I chose against that because it felt like I'd have to rush through all of them. I just chose and prayed over a few of them. I'm going to look at four of them in particular of the fruit of the Spirit. We'll try to delve into those a little bit more, but the idea would be to get you to think about the others as well. Now, I want to give a few principles for understanding this part of Scripture before we actually look at each of the fruit that I have selected. These are important foundations for understanding this list, lest we misapply it, lest we misunderstand it. And so I'm going to give you four principles to consider. The principle number one is something that will sound to you rather obvious, but is very important. Principle one, the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Spirit. I say that because I want to press against any assumptions and many misunderstandings that you can produce these things in your own self-effort. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Spirit. And yes, we must lean into that. We must 
cooperate, as it were, in the work of God's sanctification in our lives, but it is the Spirit of God that brings these things forth in us. As if we're natural people, without the Spirit of God, we're not going to bear these fruit. There are, there are natural versions of kindness and natural versions of joy. We can talk about some of those. But the Spirit-produced, Christ-connected fruit only comes if we have the Spirit of God. So it's important for us to understand this, that we are only going to become a fruitful, lush tree if we have the Spirit of God. Now kids, this is the first point in your notes. You cannot be fruitful unless you belong to Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You cannot be fruitful unless you belong to Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells within you. That leads me to my second principle in terms of these four things. The second principle is that the fruit of the Spirit flows into us as an outworking of our union with Jesus Christ. We are connected to Him spiritually. And without Him, you can do nothing. Jesus says as much in John 15, another agricultural, another plant illustration for us. He says, I am the vine. Listen to the words of our Lord, John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. You see these two different options. On one hand, you could be separated from the vine. You could be off on your, on your own, and you're not going to be able to do anything fruitful. You're not going to be bringing forth any spiritual fruit. But if you're connected to Christ, if you're abiding in, in him, you are growing in relationship with him, you are going to bring forth, he says, much fruit. And the application of this principle, brothers and sisters, is do not try to live the Christian life without Christ. There is no such thing as the Christian life without Christ. The Christian life is a Christian life because we are united to him by faith. He is the vine. He is the source of life for us. That's the second principle. The third principle is that it is our responsibility to pursue and develop these character traits. I've already established that the Spirit of God must be the the motivating, power, life-giving principle within us, but we are exhorted, we are commanded in Scripture to pursue all of these virtues. I have a list, I I don't have it in the notes that I passed out for the kids, unfortunately, but there is... You can find a command in Scripture for every single one of these fruits to do them. And so we are to be busy about pursuing these things. We are to rejoice. We are to love. We are to be kind and forgive and to to bear along with one another. Now John Owen has a helpful way of putting this. He, He says this about how we think about this connection between the work of the Spirit and the commands of the Word of God. He says... Our duty is to apply ourselves unto his commands, and his work is to enable us to perform them. So what what is your focus to be? Well, certainly you are to pray to God, you are to ask him to bring these things forth in your life, but then you are to diligently, zealously pursue them, and at every opportunity seek to bring them forth 
And God will enable you to do that. The fourth and final principle before we get to the list is that the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit singular. You notice that. It doesn't say in the text the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what's the difference? The reason that this is important is that we must not view this list as a Nine things that you could pick one out of and toss the rest, as if you have like a favorite fruit. You can certainly do that with actual physical fruits, but not with the fruit of the Spirit. You need all of them. And, of course, the Spirit of God is not going to produce a Christian with only one of them. The Spirit of God's going to bring forth all nine of these things that are listed. That's different than the list that we have about the gifts of the Spirit, for example. Gifts of the Spirit being plural... There's many different gifts of the Spirit, and not everybody has all of them. It's okay. There's diversity in the body when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. But when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, it is a package deal that the Lord works within us. You can't be content with saying, I tend to be a very joyful person, but I have absolutely no self-control. That doesn't work. You You can't be content with that. Now, granted, you might... You might excel in one of these. I think we can look at the body of Christ and we'll say, there's some people that are particularly kind. There's some that are particularly joyful. There's some that are particularly long-suffering. That's fine to recognize some of those those, uh, aspects of growth within the body, but none of us can rest content with our lack of any of these things at any point. We desire to be fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire to walk in the Spirit, and therefore we must pursue all nine of these things and the other things in Scripture that are brought forth in addition to this list. So let's look at the fruit. Like I said, I want to look at four of them. And since I cannot get into all of them today in full detail, I will commend to you a resource. It was noteworthy that our brother Pastor Todd mentioned Jerry Bridges earlier. I'm going to mention him again. I would commend to you his book called The Fruitful Life. In that book, he goes through in detail the fruit of the Spirit very helpfully in his book, The Fruitful Life. And I'll quote from him just a few times as we look at these things. So let me read the list again, and then we're going to move into the first, which is love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So we come now to the beginning of the list, and it should be no surprise to us that of all things Paul puts at the beginning of the list, it is love. There's no better way to begin because here he, he begins with the first and the most essential virtue of the Christian life. The way in which we most imitate our God is to walk in love. Paul writes elsewhere about love, of course. One of the uh, places that he writes in Colossians 3, he says this about love. Consider the power of love described in this verse. Colossians 3, 14, and Paul says, But above all these other things, all the other things he had commanded, put on love. And then he says this, Which is the bond of perfection. Or other translations render it, The thing that unites everything together in harmony. Love is this uniting glue that brings people together. It, it, 
enables relationships to take place. Where there is love, things work. Where there is not love, relationships break down. If love is absent, nothing works. Love is critical to the existence of the body of Christ. We are, we are created as a church, redeemed by the love of God displayed in Christ, and he's going to bring forth love within us as his spiritual garden, and without love, we are nothing, Paul says elsewhere. Think of love like the oil in the engine of a car. If oil is gone, that engine is done. It's not going anywhere. You try to drive that engine without oil, you're not going to get very far, and the engine will be toast. And so it is in the Christian life, brothers and sisters, if we do not have love, we are nothing. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, the greatest of all virtues in the Bible is love. Many, many times throughout Scripture it says that the greatest of these is love, or above all these things, put on love. The greatest of all virtues in the Bible is love. Now as we look at each of these fruits, there's different ways of considering them. We could, of course, do like a very detailed study of all the passages that talk about love, and that would be helpful. Uh, Another approach is for us to look at each of these fruits in light of the character of our God, or in light of the character of Christ, the Son of God, as he's revealed to us in the Gospels, for example, it helps us, I think, to view all of these fruit as they are exemplified for us in the character of our God and in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because what we find there, as we look at the example or the manifestation of these fruit in in the character of God, is something that will really humble us, right? As we look at our God above all things. There are, of course, examples in Scripture of human beings who love and who are joyful and who are gentle, and that's helpful. Those things are good examples for us. But above all of that is the example of our God's own nature displaying these things for us. That will help us, first of all, to see how far short we fall of the character of God. And then it can inspire us to strive in imitation of his holy nature. The scriptures tell us, be holy for I am holy. We are indeed to imitate the character of God. We are being recreated in the image of God. And when it comes to love, I believe it is the divine example that most helps us to understand the depth of love, the power of love, the calling of love. We look at a passage like 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. Of course, John, in his letter, he, he, he is the apostle of love. He's writing the letter about love. He's just harping on love over and over and over again. And where does he point us to? He says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John wants us to reflect upon the demonstration of love, the the very height of love, the pinnacle of love, the apex of love. Of all displays of love, which is the love of God in Christ. 
And if you want to know love, John says, look at this. Behold the cross of Christ. Behold the love of God the Father. Behold the love of the Son of God for his people. It is to sacrifice oneself. It is to give up oneself for the life of another, for the good of another. Jesus says that there's no greater love than to give up one's life for your brother or sister. This is the height. And so if we know that to love is to give up our lives, then we know that there are so many daily applications that are so much less than that but are indeed so relevant. Brothers and sisters, do you sacrifice yourself for others? Are you becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you giving up something every day, perhaps every hour, in your your family, in in your, your relationships? Are you giving up of yourself? This is what it means to love. So we go on, we we go from love now to the the second item in Paul's list. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is the second one I want to look at. A joyless Christian is a contradiction of terms. Now as I say that, you're going to be thinking, well, I've had hard days where I don't have much joy. And yes, I'm with you, I'm not... I, am, I do not believe that I am a prime example of joy by any means. I, I can struggle with these things. So, so I'm with you if you're thinking that. But when I say that it is a contradiction in terms, I am saying that it is ought not to be so. <laughs> you ought not to be joyless, just as James would say things about the tongue. He says you shouldn't have salt water and fresh water coming out of the same mouth. You're supposed to be blessing people all the time. So I am telling you a similar thing. I'm saying to you, you are not to be a joyless Christian. You are not to rest satisfied in joylessness. Now, I don't want to be glib about this. I know there are many psalms that express some of the the most profound depths of suffering, even what some might call depression. I recognize the reality of these struggles. But I am saying that the scriptures command us to joy, and they speak about what the Christian life ought to be is indeed a life of joy. So Romans 14, verse 17, Paul makes a very straightforward statement about the nature of the kingdom of God. He says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's one of those passages that gives you a sense of the basics of what the Christian life ought to look like when we see the Spirit of God at work. We're to see righteousness, we're to see peace, we're to see joy. Now if we know that this joy is a fruit of the Spirit, then we're going to be aware that it cannot be artificially produced. We we don't want uh, fake plastic apples or fake plastic oranges on our tree of, of spirituality. We want the real thing. We would like real joy. And one of the reasons that I think we should desire a growth in real spiritual joy is because spiritual joy produced by the Spirit of God is much more durable than the earthly versions. We have all different kinds of substitutes for joy. Uh, people talk about contrasting joy and happiness. I don't, I'm not bothered by the word happiness if it's biblically defined. There are passages that use that in many translations. 
But we know that the worldly kinds of happiness, or we'll just use the word joy for the moment, they're not very durable. They can't take very much. There's ways to attain to fun and to thrills in this world. There's lots of different avenues for fun and for thrills and for a degree of happiness. We can harness medications or drugs to produce a sense of ease, a sense of lightheartedness, calm, or a sense of excitement. But the kind of joy that the Spirit of God grows in us progressively, increasingly, is a joy that can take a lot more than the earthly forms. If your happiness is resting in something that you will lose in the next day, then it's not very durable. Sometimes we talk about different things, different objects that can withstand fire. You think about, for example, like file vaults. You can buy file vaults and and they'll have different ratings on the box. They'll say it can take this much of fire at a certain temperature without all your files getting burned up. Well, you need to think about joy in in the same kind of way, that the more spiritually produced joy you have, the more that you can take in life and still remain joyful. You can take fiery trials and still have joy. And you know that you have a growing spiritual joy when you can take some fiery trials and actually start doing what James says rather than just being shocked at what he says. He says, count it joy when you encounter various trials, as we heard earlier. But that is indeed the joy that the Spirit of God produces. And if you don't have much of that, if you can't take many trials, then this should certainly lead us to cry out to God for an increasing spiritual strength so that we can actually do these things. We're weak at times in these things. Now listen to an example of this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. This is a passage where Peter speaks about rejoicing twice in this reading. But in the midst of it, there's these fiery trials happening. So listen to what Peter writes. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, he's speaking about our inheritance there, that now for a little while, if need be, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What is Peter talking about here? What, where is the joy placed for the reader of Peter's letter? Well, I didn't read the earlier verses, but what he's talking about in this passage is our inheritance. That the things that God has granted to us in Christ, he says, are the things that Christians rejoice in. And because of that, though, though the trials are fiery, though these people are going through much suffering, though they're being maligned by other people, as we read later in the letter, they are able to rejoice, not in the circumstances themselves, but in the fact that their names are written in heaven, that Christ is theirs, that they have an eternal inheritance, that none of the fires can touch what God has granted to them. It is absolutely secure. We grow in joy 
in this spiritually rooted kind of joy when we set our mind on things that are above. When we find our joy not in our circumstances, but in those things that are enduring to eternity, those things that God has promised us. In other words, as we grow in an apprehension of our inheritance, we are going to be more joyful. And then we'll be able to look at the trials with the right kind of perspective. We'll be able to see them in terms of their shortness and their smallness. And yes, I know it may not feel like shortness and smallness, but compared to the eternal weight of glory, indeed, they are short and they are small. So that is joy. Now, I, I want to look at two more of the fruits before we look at the other parts of the passage. I want to look at long-suffering, which connects to what I just talked about with joy. And then I want to talk about goodness. So we look at long-suffering next. The fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. You'll see that some translations render it patience. That's a fine translation. I do like the word long-suffering because I think it gets at the core idea of this particular word. And it's a word that I think we need to retain in our thinking, especially because it lends itself to rearrangement. You can take the word long-suffering and then you could just rearrange it and you can say, to very simply define it, to suffer long. That's helpful for us in our thinking. That the Christian life, with the Spirit of God assisting you, bringing forth fruit, enables you to suffer long without sinning. Long-suffering is another essential characteristic to be able to be in relationship with other people. So many of these fruits are especially relevant to our human relationships. I think that is a focus that Paul has in Galatians with the forks of the flesh in contrast with the fruit of the Spirit. And if we do not have the grace of long-suffering, we are not able to endure in relationship. We are not able to interact with other people who still have a sin nature very well because our own sin nature gets in the way and they clash, relationships break down, there's conflict and frustration, and it just gets destroyed. We need to grow in the grace of long-suffering. And here especially, it's helpful for us to go back to the divine prototype, the divine example of the Lord, who is a God of patience, a God of long-suffering. The more that we realize how patient God is with us, the more we will find it to be ridiculous and unfitting to be impatient with others. Exodus 34, this is the Lord's revelation of himself to his people. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now, I know all of us fall short of this description, but I would ask you, if somebody was to describe you, who knows you well, could they describe you as a merciful, gracious, and long-suffering person, abounding in goodness? We are indeed to reflect the character of God. I know we fall short. But would somebody describe you this way? Are you a long-suffering person? 
Oh, if we would have a better grasp of the patience of God with us. We, we need to remember how every single day God is merciful and patient with us. Passing over our sins. Covered by the righteousness of Christ. And yet real, real sins. Covered by the righteousness of Christ that we commit every single day. Jerry Bridges has something helpful to say about this in application. He's speaking about the patience of God and reflecting on our lack of patience with others. He says, We are like the unmerciful servant when we lose our patience under provocation. We ignore God's extreme patience with us. We discipline our children out of anger while God disciplines us out of love. We are eager to punish the person who provokes us while God is eager to forgive. We are eager to exercise our authority while God is eager to exercise his love. He's saying we're, we're, it's so pitiful that we're these unmerciful servants and, and God has been so patient with us and then we are so impatient with other people. We have all these different ways in which our impatience can be flared up, can be revealed. Of course, it's within us. It's not caused by other people. You need to remember that. Those are just the circumstances that show what's in your heart. You become impatient with your children. You're impatient with their disobedience. You've been teaching them and teaching them and teaching them and they are still not getting it. And you become angry. You become impatient with them. You're not suffering long with them anymore. You're not walking in the way that Christ would gently restore them. You're, you're using your fleshly tactics to solve the problem. You're frustrated because your husband or your wife will still not do the thing that you've asked them to do, the thing that they said they would do, and you will not suffer long anymore. You're going to turn to other tactics. You're frustrated with the person that is driving two miles per hour under the speed limit, and you want to go five miles per hour above the speed limit. And you're frustrated, and you're thinking, What's, what were they doing? What's wrong with them? You're frustrated with the person that's late to all your meetings. You don't want to suffer long with them anymore. Our impatience, our lack of long-suffering with others, it reveals two spiritual problems about us. Again, it's, it's, it's revealing something about you. It's not about other people. It's not about the person driving slow. It's not about your kid's disobedience. There's, there's always, of course, right ways to respond to all those challenges. But there are two problems with us. The first is this. We think ourselves far too important. I, I talked about this last week in the exhortation. We, we're small, but we think ourselves far too big. And if, if we think about life as the kingdom of me, my kingdom come, my will be done, we are quite offended at people's lack of conformity to our kingdom, to our rules, to our standards, to our timing. We are very frustrated about these things, but we need to remember that we... It is not about us, brothers and sisters. It is not our kingdom that we seek. It is not our rules that we enforce. It's God's rules, hopefully, in the context of parenting, of course, that we bring out and apply. But it's not about us, is my point. The second problem that this lack of long-suffering reveals is our 
We do not have an adequate spiritual conception of how merciful and long-suffering God has been to us. We are a work in progress, every single one of us, right? God does not give up on us. He does not forsake us. The Spirit of God does not say, this is going too slow. Of course, the Spirit works as he wills in the timing that he determines. But he does not give up on us. And so we are called to patience. We are called to long-suffering. Next, we go to the Spirit. Uh, The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Now, I wanted to look at goodness because I think it is a neglected concept in our thinking. Maybe it's a less familiar word as to its meaning. I think I understood better what kindness means, but I was trying to get my head around what is goodness? What, what does it mean to be good, to do good? Well, if we would be like our Lord Jesus Christ, then this ought to characterize us, brothers and sisters. We ought to be those who are full of goodness. Acts 10.38, this is a description about Jesus' ministry when he was here on earth. It says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You could not come into contact with Jesus without being affected by his goodness in some way or another. Everywhere he went, He was overflowing with goodness, healing, ministering, teaching, restoring, forgiving. He was all over the place doing all of these things. He went about doing good. And children, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, we act like Jesus when we find ways to do good to others. This is Christ-likeness at work. This is a very active Christ-likeness. It doesn't just sit there. It doesn't just sit in a chair and be good. It does good to others. It flows out of us and affects the lives of others around us. This is one definition I found of the word. It's just from a Greek dictionary. I think it's a good definition. Goodness is a positive moral quality characterized especially by interest in the welfare of of others. It is an interest. It is a concern for the well-being of those around you. It is emphatically a not inward virtue. It is an outward virtue. It affects those around you. And I want us to see here that to be good, to do good, is not nearly as complex as we might sometimes think. I think we are sometimes hampered by this sense that we just don't know what to do. Maybe that's the case sometimes. Certainly we're hampered by our selfishness. That's a big block to doing good to other people. But I want you to see that to do good to others takes a lot of very simple applications. You don't have to wait for a special opportunity once a year to do good. There is opportunities all around you to do good. So much of doing good comes through your words, certainly will come through your actions, through your giving, through your sacrificial care for other people. But the question is, do you have a looking towards the welfare of others? Are you looking around you as you come here on a a Sunday or as you interact with the body of Christ on any other opportunity or as you interact with your neighbors and your community? Do you have an eye for how you can do good? 
Jerry Bridges has something helpful to say about goodness. He says, I believe that most people, Christians as well as non-Christians, are so starved for the genuine interest of one other person that a little bit of concern from someone who cares goes a long way. One of the most plaintive statements in the Bible is David's cry in Psalm 142, No one cares for my soul. Do you know someone who possibly feels that way? If so, you have an opportunity to do good to that person by just saying, I want you to know that I care, or whatever words are the most fitting for that person. Just to encourage somebody is an impactful way to do good. Now, sometimes it needs to go beyond that. Sometimes people need more than encouragement. They need you to help them move their things out of a storage unit or out of their house, so you should do that if the calling is that. But my point is that we can do good to one another, brothers and sisters. We can do these things by the grace of God. Some of us are hesitant. We doubt our ability to do much good, or we doubt our skill to do much good. Maybe I just mess it up. I won't really help. And there's many times where people are in the midst of suffering, and because people don't know what to do, they do nothing. And then we, we learn later that, that that was hurtful, that people did not love, people did not express care. Don't let the concern about not knowing what to do keep you from doing anything. You, let, let us seek to do something for one another. Romans 15, verse 14, Paul says this in terms of the body of Christ. He says, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. If we have the Spirit of God, we can do good. This doesn't have to be spectacular. And yes, you cannot relieve all suffering, all problems. You can't fix everything for people. But you can take an interest in the welfare of others. I myself have received much goodness from this congregation. I can testify to that. I give thanks to God for that. And so I have been a recipient of the goodness of the body of Christ. And I know many others of you can testify to the very same thing. May we excel. May we grow in showing good to one another. Now I want to look here at the last few verses of our passage. They're important as well. We look at verse 24 next. Paul continues to contrast. He gives us the works of the flesh. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit. He's here reminding us about the work of killing sin in verse 24. He says, Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this language of crucifixion, it might bring to your mind an important passage earlier in Galatians. Galatians 2.20, I've probably quoted it like in half of all these sermons because it's so important. Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, I want you to notice both a similarity and a difference between these two passages. What is similar about Galatians 2 and Galatians 5.24? What is similar is the language of crucifixion. You notice that? That in both cases, there is the language of crucifying, self-crucifying sin. And so Galatians 2.20 is the foundation upon which chapter 5, verse 24 is built. Galatians 2.20 expresses who you are as a Christian. It, it, It expresses the fact that if you are united to Christ, your old self is dead and gone and done. You are a a man or a woman in Christ. And this is important for us in our combat against sin. 
Martin Luther would often reflect upon this when, when the temptations of the evil one would come knocking. And, and in his mind, it was as if Satan was knocking at his door. And, and Luther would reply, he would say, go away. Martin Luther doesn't live here anymore. A new man in Christ lives here. That's how you respond. You are not that old person anymore. You, you are a new man in Christ. That's how you respond to temptation. But notice also the difference. Galatians 2.20, the verb is passive. I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 5.24, it's an active verb. Those who belong to Christ, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So in the first picture, you are nailed to the cross with Christ. That's the death of your old self, and now you're a new man in Christ. In chapter 5, verse 24, you are the executioner. You are the one killing sin. Now, it only happens because of what chapter 2 says, of course. But the idea is that you are active in the crucifixion of your sin. You are putting it to death. It's a very gruesome picture. Now, how does this picture help us? You may not want to think much about it visually, but it's what's given to us in the text. So how does this picture help us? Well, there's three things that we know about crucifixion from our understanding of these things in history and from our understanding of the Bible. And these help us, I think, in understanding the conflict, the killing of sin. The first is that crucifixion is painful. It is painful to put sin to death. The sinful nature loves certain sins, doesn't want to see them done away with. And it's going to involve some pain, some suffering to part with these things for good. It is painful. The second reality is that crucifixion was gradual. People did not die immediately on crosses. It was a period, a process of time in which a death took place. And that is quite fitting then to think about how we kill sin. We are continually killing sin, but if the crucifixion has begun, the idea is that you keep sin on the cross. You don't take it off the cross and revive it and try to nurse it back to health. You keep it on the cross until it's dead. And the third is that crucifixion is always final. It's painful, it's slow, but it is final in its effect. Sin will die in our lives if we belong to Christ. And thanks be to God, there is a day coming that we will be perfected in body and soul. We will not have a single remnant of sin in our lives. The crucifixion of the flesh with its passions and desires will be completely done. No remnants whatsoever. So that's one of his exhortations, is you've got to kill sin, you've crucified it. It's actually an identity statement, again. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. They've put sin on the cross, it's dying. Now the final picture that we need to look at here is the last two verses, Galatians 5, 25 and 26. We'll look at verse 25 first. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, I want to give you the rendering of the ESV because this brings out for us a very important picture in the text. And the ESV reads this way. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? That's an interesting image. We think of keeping in step, and maybe the thing that came to your mind, I don't know if it did or not, it did for me, was dancing, like a dancing kind of thing. You had to keep in step with the rhythm of the music or something. While that could be a metaphor, I don't think that's the main metaphor in view here because this verb, to keep in step with, was a military term. It referred to the marching of soldiers in line with one another. There's marching that takes place in step. And that's a helpful picture for us because it pictures for us the Holy Spirit of God as the drill sergeant for us as new recruits, telling us where to go and how to do it. And kids, this is the fourth point in your notes. To please God, we need to listen to the Spirit's marching orders. We need to listen to the Spirit's marching orders. Now, all of us are in the Lord's army, right? We know the song, I am in the Lord's army. We talk about soldiers of the cross and onward Christian soldiers. We are soldiers for Christ, and we have one who directs us in the way we should go. We have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has marching orders for us. The Spirit of God says, go this way, not that way. The Spirit of God says, do it this way, not that way. We need to listen to the Spirit's marching orders. We find those in the Bible. We find those in the the inward spiritual nudges that the Spirit of God works within us to do the right thing, provoking our consciences to consider how to act and driving us to do good, we respond to those things. Finally, I want to look at verse 26 in in contrast again. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If you want to know somebody that's not marching in line with the Spirit of God, it is somebody that is conceited. Conceit is just another word for being full of yourself, being proud. King James renders it as vainglory. That's a great word. Vainglory. It's a great word because that's exactly what the the word means. It means empty glory. You're glorying in yourself when you're not glorious in and of yourself. You are thinking you are big stuff when you are not big stuff. You are thinking highly of yourself, far too highly, when you're not thinking with sober judgment according to what the Word of God says about you, and you are conceited. Some have wondered why the word humility is not on the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't it interesting that humility is not on the list? I would suggest, however, that it actually is addressed, and it's addressed here in the word conceit. Let us not become conceited. Let us not be proud. Pride destroys everything. If we think about love as this highway that's just flowing, there's good things happening on the highway of love. Pride comes in, and what happens to the highway? It's a 50-car pileup and destruction everywhere. It destroys love. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, if you're conceited, if you're thinking about yourself, you're thinking too highly of yourself, you are not going to do these fruit of the Spirit. You're, just, you're not going to be thinking along this wavelength. You're not going to be listening to the Spirit of God's marching orders. A person consumed by vainglory is a spiritually disabled person. It's like having two broken spiritual legs. You can't really love people. You can't really have joy in the Lord. You can't really show goodness to other people because you are so consumed with self. So if you struggle to love others, if you find it difficult to be patient with others, if you rarely, if ever, think of doing good for others, 
do not be surprised to find that the root of that is your self-conceit, your pride, your overly inflated view of yourself. And so that's what he says, is that if you're conceited, you're going to be provoking people. You're going to be envying people. You're going, to be, you're going to be messing up every relationship around you because of your conceit as it grows and produces terrible, terrible effects. And so Paul's giving us these contrasts so that we can see the beauty, the value, the desirability of the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to come back to that picture now as we close, that picture I began with. The, there is the two possibilities. We have on one hand the barren desert wasteland of sin. No fruit, no life. A land parched for water. Nobody wants to be there. But where the Spirit of God dwells, there is an abundant, beautiful garden. Lush, rich with fruit, trees overflowing, trees weighed down with fruit, uh, bringing forth life, refreshment. What do you long for, brothers and sisters? where, Where do you long to dwell? Would you rather be stuck in the middle of a dry wasteland without food or water? Or would you rather dwell in that place in which there is fruit and water and life? Well, that is where the Spirit of God works, brothers and sisters, and we should certainly see, uh, by God's mercy, that the body of Christ is a place where we see spiritual fruit. And I do believe we do see spiritual fruit. I give thanks to God for it when it is at work, when it is evident. And so may we pray in light of this that we would be an abundant, fruitful garden for the Lord, that we would bear much fruit for Christ, for his glory, and for the good of those around us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this passage and the instruction that it brings to us. We're thankful for uh, this list of the fruit of the Spirit that sets forth for us what it means to be like Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have saved us, you've delivered us from our sins through your precious blood, through your death, through your resurrection. We ask that now that you have granted us the gift of the Spirit, that you would bring forth fruit in us, that we would be very fruitful for you. Help us, Lord, not only to seek these fruits in prayer, but also to diligently exercise ourselves in the pursuit of them. We ask that you would make us a fruitful garden and that all of this would redound to your glory, that people would know, they would see that this is the work of God within the people of God. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.